You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio, possibly the most interesting hour of the week, David, for anybody listening to this podcast. I mean, I'm sure you think that. I know you think this is the best show on, on America's Web Radio. One of the best. One of the best. One, one, of, one of the best one 30 of top shows on America's Web Radio. Uh, David, it's a great day today. It's a little chilly here in the south. No gardening update other than the garden's frozen. Um, <laughs> but big, big, big news just came out this morning. Uh, apparently late yesterday, Supreme Court issued an order on the Texas versus U.S., or better said, the U.S. versus Texas case. So last night... Apparently, the Supreme Court issued this order. Well, actually, it's from today, um, when we knew they'd be acting. Uh, but we thought, David, this is odd, we thought that they would actually um, issue this decision that they took the case on Friday. So everybody was all, oh, my gosh, what's going to go on? What's happening? Are they going to take the case? Are not going to take the case? And then we heard nothing. And we looked at their order from Friday. Uh, we looked at their docket from Friday, and it looked like they hadn't considered it. So everybody thought they would consider it this next Friday. But it turns out they did consider it, and their order is as follows. Uh, in case number 15674, 15 denoting the year of the appeal, uh, petition for certiorari, and this was apparently the 674th appeal to the Supreme Court, I guess, um, the United States et al. versus Texas et al. Quote, the petition for writ of certiorari is granted. That's good news, because it's the government that's appealing the Fifth Circuit's uh, position on this, and importantly, uh, it does only take four justices to grant a petition for cert. Doesn't mean who's going to win on the case. It means four justices found this argument compelling. In addition, now here's where the key is, David. And I think this is really important for you and I to talk about. Is in addition to the questions presented by the petition, because normally they would end there. We'd say petition for certiorari is granted, bam. But in addition to the questions presented by the petition. The parties are directed to brief and argue the following question. This question was not presented for argument, uh, although they did bring it up by the state of Texas, is whether the guidance violates the take care clause of the Constitution, Article 2, Section 3. Now, Dave, would you happen to have your copy of the Constitution here? Could you read for us the take care clause, which is found within the duties of the president as it relates to Congress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Sure. All right. So what does it say? Uh, what does the take care clause? He, being the, the president, president, shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed and shall commission all the officers of the United States. All right. So the key part there is the president is to take care that all the laws are faithfully executed. That's a great question, David. Which laws? Exactly. Which laws? It says, I mean, and what is the modifier for laws there? It is all. All. All laws. So... Faithfully executed. Now, that's this is a fascinating question. What does the take care clause of the United States Constitution mean today for the president? And how? Do, what does it mean to faithfully execute? What does that mean? I mean, these, these are powerful questions. I mean, is, uh, the, the state of Texas would argue that the president has not faithfully executed, not, has not taken care to faithfully execute all laws enacted by Congress on immigration. Now, the president has argued that this is a resource issue, that I would love to uh, enforce all the laws. And I mean, 
nobody can argue that Obama has not enforced immigration laws to a certain extent. You know, you don't deport two and a half million people by accident. Um, and he is his all his DHS folks have always said Congress has given us enough moolah, enough cash to deport around four hundred thousand people a year. But last year they only deported two hundred seventy-five thousand people, according to their numbers. Now you can believe their numbers, you cannot believe whatever, whatever. But I mean, on the ground, I can tell you, David, people are getting deported every day. I mean, I know that's happening, uh, just from my own experience. So the question is, what does this take care clause mean? Um, and is there been any prior interpretations of this uh, by, our, by our friends in the Supreme Court? Have they looked at the take care clause previously? Uh, the clause itself imposes a duty on the president to take due care while executing the laws. Or it's also called the faithful execution clause. Now, what's interesting about this faithfully executed clause is that depending on who you talk to, uh, it appears to stand for two diametrically opposed principles. Okay, and this is, this is really fascinating as we talk about this. One imposes a duty upon the president um, uh, to act on this. Others view the take care clause as an empowering clause to give the president authority to faithfully execute as he sees fit the laws as created by Congress. Um, so, for example, when, a, when an agency says we're not going to take action, so let's take a, bit, a, bit, a prosecutor. So the police bring somebody to you, David, and say, this guy committed robbery, here's the evidence. The prosecutor goes, hmm, yeah, I don't think there's enough evidence here. For, I'm not going to prosecute this case. Has the prosecutor taken due, due care to, to faithfully execute the laws? The question is, has, what, under what authority does he have to say to the police, no, we're not going to prosecute this guy? There's an apparently inherent power given, in this case, to the executive about whether or not they should enforce that particular law. Is the president empowered, for example, to enforce laws that are on their face unconstitutional? Presumably, you don't want a president to say he's going to faithfully uphold the Constitution and then enforce a law that on its face is facially uh, unconstitutional. So this, this due care clause, while the, the, the take care clause, while something that is clearly, um, how do we say it, um, uh, limiting, limiting to the president, perhaps, say, hey, we passed the law, you have to enforce it. You might not like the law, we don't care if you don't like the law. You enforce the law. Uh, at the same time, it seems to give the president the ability to say, well, that law is unconstitutional. I'm not going to enforce it. Now, and a key example of this, besides outside the context of immigration, is in the context of, uh, uh, of gay marriage. Uh, the marriage, uh, um, was it the Marriage Protection? What is that, what is that act called, David, where Congress passed it, Clinton signed it? It was called the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA. Obama comes in and says, it's unconstitutional. I'm not going to enforce it. So you can, you can sue all you want. The federal government is not going to come in and stop states from doing X, Y, Z or to try to uphold uh, or try to bar gay marriage. So the president's, the argument on that and the take care clause is the president did not faithfully execute DOMA. I don't know anybody they argued that or not. But as DOMA went forward, the president had authority, had, had the obligation to defend it. But this whole take care clause is like other clauses in the Constitution is it today, does it mean what the founders said it meant, and did they say what this meant? 
So I'm, I'm curious. I'm, it's actually a fascinating constitutional law question, don't you think? You know, I, I am... I'm a black and white person as far as the Constitution is mm-hmm. concerned. But what's black and white about that? Well, I, not a lot, but other people would come in and say, well, we have a living Constitution, so we have to apply it. You know, and, and in this case, I, I guess I marvel continually at the Founding Fathers and the, and the writing of the Constitution. It's remarkable, really. In, in that, yes, it's ambiguous, but they covered their ambiguity by saying we're going to have a third branch called the Supreme Court. Court. To look at this. That will determine. Now, let me ask this. Okay, so this is going to be heard before. on a case, It's heard on a case-by-case basis. So they're not going to be able to, they won't, or the, the Supreme Court couldn't change the ambiguity of that particular writing that portion of the of the but they can apply it to this case or that case or whatever case they want to correct correct and so i you know i marvel at that i I think that's uh what our founding fathers had in mind uh is is incredible and i think this is a a case i I think it's an example of the constitution keeping in mind what they were doing back then were all you know two dozen founding fathers of equal mind on the issue of the Constitution? No, clearly not. Um, but to uh, look at what Hamilton wrote, M- Madison wrote, what Adams wrote as part of the Federalist Papers, which was really an interchange of, of letters about what they believed the Constitution meant, and you see that there's not there's not, a, not necessarily always a unanimity of opinion on what it meant, and I think they were okay with That's the thing. Today, we seem to not be okay with ambiguity. And the founding fathers fathers lived in an ambiguity. Well, they, 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 they were they were looking at um, when they wrote the Constitution. Why were they writing the Constitution? Because the Articles of the Confederation had failed. Failed. Totally. And, and they realized that a weak central government was a bad thing. It was not going to keep the states together. It was not going to be United States of America. So, but at the same time, there were some people who were still very concerned about states' rights, states' issues where the power came from. And so while the Constitution creates a strong federal government, it doesn't create an imperial federal government. Uh, that's why you have the Tenth Amendment, of course. You know, the power is not reserved here, reserved to the states, etc. But it's really interesting that they, when they created the Constitution, they knew that they had to get nine states, was it nine or ten states, to agree to it before it came into effect. Two-thirds, two-thirds, I forget what two-thirds of 13 is. Of 13. I think it's nine. Uh, and uh, as they as they went for that forward, they knew they were going to have very diverse states in Georgia and Massachusetts. Looking at these at this wording, now maybe the take care clause wasn't really you know to them it's not controversial. Just hey, freaking you're the president, enforce the freaking laws, right? But at the time, what laws existed? The federal government had very few laws. Uh, today, the federal government has massive amounts of laws uh, as a result of. Uh, the Commerce Clause expansion in the 1930s. The uh, federal government went into a lot of different areas uh, in our lives that maybe they, they certainly weren't in when our founding fathers were around. And, I mean, I don't think they were prophets, but I do think they were guided by the hand of deity when they wrote the Constitution. Uh, and deity, of course, knowing what the future would hold, knowing we would have the complications we have today. So I think, in many ways, the Constitution is a living document in the context that it was divinely inspired, 
uh, and that it was written by very, very intelligent men who realized that things weren't going to stay the same. And therefore, they put wording and words in the Constitution that allows it to be interpreted into the 21st century. Would you ever argue that potentially immigration, your your mm-hmm. specialty, is not really a federal but a state's right? No, because I think it's clearly a federal right. It's clearly a federal right. I mean, there are four different clauses of the Constitution that refer either directly or indirectly to immigration. And there's no doubt that you, as in the United States, do not want to have one state because of the fact that the Constitution allows for free travel between the states and no, no the travel clause of the Constitution. So if one state has an immigration law that's very liberal and another state has a immigration law that's very, very restrictive, the Constitution would say, well, those people can go anywhere in the United States. So therefore, because of the nature of immigration, because of what it is, and because of other clauses in the Constitution, which I love how they all work together, um, no, it's clearly a federal issue. You know, clearly a federal issue. Plus, the Constitution says the Congress shall establish laws for naturalization. At the time, there weren't green cards. Green cards are a modern invention. Uh, uh, starting out in the in the in the, uh, in the in the 20th century, so the idea that Congress doesn't have authority and control immigration directly now can Congress, David, give to the states the authority to to act in immigration in different ways? I think Congress could do that. I think the federal executive branch could do that, and several different states, including Utah, actually passed laws to create special worker visas in their state but could not actually carry them forward because the Obama administration wouldn't give them the authority on doing this. So this whole take care clause, are we going to get a break already? My gosh. Let's take our first break before we come back and talk more about the Supreme Court's case here on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Si usted tiene problemas con inmigración o asuntos que tiene que arreglar, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Tenemos más de 50 años de experiencia haciendo las leyes de inmigración y defendiendo a los inmigrantes. Llámenos hoy a las 404-816-8611, a las 404-816-8611 o al www.immigration.net. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on americaswebradio.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. David, it's great to be back today. We were talking about the Supreme Court taking the uh, United States versus Texas case on the issue of DACA and expanded DACA, and the Supreme Court adding a new issue, an issue that I know is near and dear to your heart because it's actually in the Constitution called the Take Care Clause. What has the Supreme Court and other federal courts said previously about the Take Care Clause? 
Now, the Take Care Clause stands, as we said earlier, for what appear to be two diametrically opposed propositions. One, imposing a duty upon the president to faithfully execute the laws, and the other viewing the clause as a source of presidential power. Now, think about that, because if the president has the obligation, the duty, to enforce the law, that means he necessarily has the power to do so, right? There's a presidential power component here. This is where the authority of executive orders, I believe, come from in the Constitution. The power and the take care clause. Because, I mean, all of the rest of his duties are you've seen in there. And it's interesting that that clause, the other clause is very specific. You get the sworn in officers, you have to deliver an address to Congress. You have to, but the powers, other than that, are very limited by the President of the United States, except for the take care clause. So it's very, very powerful. Uh, here is what the Supreme Court said. Pre- Primarily, the Take Care Clause has been interpreted as placing an obligation on both the president and those under his supervision, the executive branch, to comply with and execute clear statutory directives as enacted by Congress. Now, let's take a look at those. A case called uh, Medellin versus Texas. Texas is always out there, right? From 2008, Supreme Court, quote, This authority allows the president to execute the laws, not make them. Okay. So the president can't make laws. Here's the question, David. Is there power and law? Well, that's a great question. Does the president have power to execute policy? Clearly, because the president has, there are tens of thousands of pages of the Federal Register where the implementation of the laws by Congress are carried out. Keep in mind, almost all laws, including immigration laws, give broad direction to the executive branch to enact implementing regulations, etc. So it's not just laws. Laws are statutes. So the president cannot make a law. Can the president interpret the law? Absolutely. Who else can interpret the law? Supreme Supreme Court. Court. Which is a, a check you talked about, that balance right there. Next case. This is actually the famous Youngstown case. Youngstown is the case everybody, even I learned in law school that many years ago. 1952, Youngstown Sheet and Tube versus Sawyer said this, quote, The president's power, and this came out of Harry Truman, by the way, um, if I recall the Youngstown case, uh, using the U.S. Army, or at least the National Guard, to break a strike at a steel plant, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. You may remember this case better than I do, David, because you were alive in 1952, but I was not. Uh, the president's power to see that laws are faithfully executed refutes the idea he is to be a lawmaker. The Constitution limits his functions in the lawmaking process to the recommending of laws he thinks wise and the vetoing of laws he thinks bad. Okay? Got that? Laws. Okay? Um, the president... Uh, let's, take, let's put that in the context of Obama and DAPA. Did the president come out and say... I do not believe the deportation laws of the United States are uh, correct. Did he say that? No, he didn't say that. So what did he say as part of the guidance in DAPA and DAPA? He said, we have a limited budget. We have limited numbers of people we can deport every year because Congress has not given me an unlimited budget to enforce the laws. I believe the laws can be enforced in a way that makes it effective to us. And while we are in the process of deporting people, I want to offer people an opportunity to come forward to receive a work permit um, so that we can identify who they are, we can put them in our database, and when appropriate, 
deport them if we have the funding from Congress. Now, this is a whole different thing because as you look at the, as you know, as you know at this point, maybe listeners don't, DAPA was not an executive order. DAPA is a, is a policy guidance from the Secretary of Homeland Security. So Obama announced it, but he didn't announce an executive order. He announced a, a guidance policy on how they're going to implement the law. So the state of Texas is basically arguing the way you're going to implement the law is wrong. You don't you you didn't you didn't do it by following the APA, and because you you're, you're interpreting the law, you got to go through the APA. Supreme Court's now saying, does this in any way implicate the Take Care Clause? Is the president making law through policy guidance of the Homeland Security Secretary? This is just fascinating. Uh, in Myers versus the United States, 1926, David, even you weren't born at this point. Quote. The duty of the president to see that laws be executed is a duty that does not go beyond the laws or require him to achieve more than Congress sees fit to leave within his power. And that's an interesting point of view from the Supreme Court. And then finally, there is a 1988 Ninth Circuit case, Ninth Circuit, we don't live in the Ninth Circuit, as, as, as an Eleventh Circuit judge once told me, to construe this duty to faithfully execute the laws as implying the power to forbid their execution perverts the clear language of the take care clause. So the president can't say, for example, I can't enforce this even though you give me the power to do so. I, I think this is absolutely uh, fascinating. Um, uh, fascinating uh, clause and fascinating description. Uh, another description case out of, the, out of the D.C. Circuit from 74. The constitutional duty does not, that constitutional duty does not permit the president to refrain from executing laws duly enacted by Congress as those laws are construed by the judiciary. Now, this is a very interesting case. The duty does not re- refrain from executing the laws. Is Obama refraining from executing the laws by allowing people to come forward, be identified, take their prints, take their biometrics, get their data, and then putting them in a database that temporarily gives them a work permit, but which construes no other benefits upon them? I mean, it's it's it, David. It's just it's a fascinating issue, and in many ways, I am um, uh, I am really happy to see the Supreme Court put this into play. Uh, I think we might get a very very clear interpretation of the Take Care Clause of the Constitution. Now, here's my question, David: Who among the justices raised this issue? Who did? I, we don't know. I mean, who would be your guess? Roberts, maybe. No, I doubt it would be Roberts. I who, would, who would it be? The Rob, big guy. The big guy. Scalia. Uh, Scalia. God, this yeah. is this is right up Scalia's. This is right in his wheelhouse. You know. Yeah. This is right down the middle of the plate from this issue, the Take Care Clause. I think it's fascinating. Okay, it's well, fascinating. In in review of what you've said, as I heard this, you've got a, you've got so many players here. You got the president. Okay, then you've got the president supporting the law, maybe or maybe not, but also the policy that's been thrown in by the Homeland Security. They're a player. You've got whatever the law is. Then my question, too, in reviewing the policy before he before a president acts on a policy, doesn't it have to be reviewed by the attorney general? And then also, where is the president's personal counsel on this in, in a situation? Well, it doesn't, I mean, I'm, I made a mistake. With the, let's start with the last question. For the president's personal counsel advises him on personal issues. 
and the okay, power so of the presidency. I probably not involved, although he may. But have you been just said that, this. and the power of the yeah, he may have been involved. But if he's involved, he's going to say what the law is, which is, you know, you have the authority to faith. You have an obligation to faithfully execute these laws, and you have the power to faithfully execute the laws. You have, you have both, and they might be competing. And here, what he's saying, what Obama's saying through Jay Johnson, the Homeland Security Secretary, is in order for me to faithfully execute the laws. With the money you have given me, I'm going to develop a program that identifies people who are currently unidentified, who are undocumented, so that I can have priorities to enforce the law as you have authorized me to do with the money you have authorized me to do it with. See, we wouldn't be having this conversation, David, if there was unlimited funds for deportation, would we? Would we be having this conversation? No. Because at that point, the president, he's got no justification on enforcing the laws. So in how this works, did the president, I see, I can't see Obama doing it, but I mean having the mental capacity to do it even. So who under him came to him and said, this is what we need to do and you'll... Oh, no, clearly this came, I will tell you where this came from, David. This came from, uh, let's call them activists. Activists. Now, the plan itself is not from activists, but they've been saying, hey, you need to do something to help people. And I think he had people within his administration, within USCIS uh, specifically, within ICE to a certain extent, and certainly at the Homeland Security Department level. I know there was teams working on this issue, because I've talked to some of these team members uh, who were on this, who proposed these ideas. So the idea generated from a need for Obama to do something um, with Congress not acting, uh, and then an idea of, well, what can we do within the parameters of the law? Now, I think the AG did, in fact, sign off on this. Certainly, counsel, general counsel at Homeland Security signed off on this. The Homeland Security Secretary himself is actually a lawyer. He signed off on this. Um, and they sign off on this because as you look at the law, whether it's a take-care clause, whether it's law itself, when a law cannot be fully enforced, the prosecution, i.e. the executive branch of the government at whatever level, has to determine what's going to get enforced. David, there is a very famous case called U.S. versus Nixon, okay, uh, which says, quote, Supreme Court 1974, the executive branch has exclusive authority and absolute discretion to decide whether to prosecute a case in light of the take care clause. So this is that whole authority versus duty. Power versus duty. What do you have the power to do? What do you have the duty to do? Supreme Court's saying you have both. You have a duty to enforce the law, but you have the authority to decide not to enforce the law. This is uh, here's another one from U.S. versus Armstrong. They have this latitude because they are designated by statutes of president. Oh, let me do another question. Here's a look at here. Choosing in whether to prosecute or not prosecute or to abandon a prosecution already is absolute in the power of the presidency. Um, this is, um, I mean, these are Supreme uh, Court cases that have never really addressed this issue straight on. And I think it's fascinating that at least one member of the Supreme Court and likely a bunch of others say, you know, I would love to address this issue. What a great vehicle to address this issue with. You know, when you only take 80 or 90 cases a year, David, 
unlike you know regular judges who have hundreds and hundreds of cases, uh, you can pick the juicy stuff. <laughs> you can pick the fun stuff. Uh, and uh, this, I think, is going to be a fascinating, fascinating argument uh, at the Supreme Court. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to reading the briefs on this issue. Any constitutional law junkie like yourself should be very interested in this issue. They agree or they disagree? Well, what are the what is the end? Well, that's a great. I want to get that in the next segment when we come back. I want to talk about what the implications are, what happens here. But as we wind up this segment, David, it's really interesting because um, uh, the whole idea, and there's actually, by the way, a really great, I'm going to recommend to my, to my listeners, the Congressional Research Service, which is a nonpartisan organization within Congress that researches stuff by Congress's question, wrote in September 2014, so two months before Obama issued the orders, they wrote a thing called the Take Care Clause, and executive discretion in the enforcement of law. Then I'm going to email that to you so you happen to have that. I think it's a really interesting article written, in, and it's not written as a law review article. It's written as in layman's terms. I think you'll find it absolutely fascinating and, and encourage our readers. Dated September 4th, 2014. Uh, pull that up, take a look at it, and you're going to see a precursor to the Supreme Court arguments on, on this issue. Uh, we'll be back in the next segment of Immigration Hour here on America's Web Radio. Si usted ha casado con un ciudadano, o tiene problemas con inmigración, o tiene una oferta de trabajo, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Con más de 100 años de experiencia en la ley de inmigración, conocemos la ley y sabemos cómo ayudarle. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611, a las 404-816-8611, o visítenos al www.immigration.net. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. <laughs> Welcome back to America's Web Radio on the Immigration Hour. Now, David, you asked, asked a question at near the end of our last segment is, well, what does this mean, Chuck? What's going to happen? What the deal is? Now, even though the Supreme Court has, has thrown in a, a constitutional issue, what does the Take Care Clause mean in this context? doesn't mean they're going to decide the case on an issue. The the first issue in this case at the Supreme Court is whether the states have standing to sue on this. 
And now the Fifth Circuit twice said, oh, of course, yeah, they're standing to sue on this. But there's no – I mean, the precedent on that I think is a little weak. And I think it's just as easy for the Supreme Court to come out and say, there's no standing on this. Uh, sorry, guys, you can't bring this lawsuit. Um, and um, uh, you can't move forward on this. Have a nice day. Obama can do whatever he wants. Now, they might not do that. They might then get to the second issue. Uh, the second issue is whether or not Obama was required to follow the Administrative Procedures Act. Okay, uh, or, And they may rule against Obama or with Obama and say, yes, you were required to follow or you weren't required to follow it. I'm not sure they get to the take care clause here, but they may. And if so, David, I think it's going to be a fascinating argument. And I think I want to go to the, I'm admitted to the Supreme Court. I think I'd like to use my credentials and get in to this oral argument. I think this would be absolutely fascinating to sit there and watch. Um, especially with uh, Justice Roberts uh, uh, running this show and seeing how he balances this. This is, this is really interesting. Oh, by the way, you'll be happy to know the Supreme Court declined to take the, the Obamacare case on the tax issue, whatever it was. That it, had to, it, had to, it had to originate in the House. They declined to take that case. So Obamacare lives for another year. Just FYI. I thought you'd be interested in that. So you're doing your question. What happens? All right. Let's say the Supreme Court takes a case and says, you know what? The Fifth Circuit, you're right, or you were wrong, and, we, and we're still going to find against the Obama administration for the take care clause. All right. So Obama loses. The administration loses the case. What happens? Nothing. Because it never took effect. So we're just stuck with the law we currently have. And the current law is that the Obama administration has defined his priorities for removal as follows. One, the highest priority, people who have been convicted of felonies of any kind. You are priority one for deportation. Priority two for deportation. You have been convicted of a serious misdemeanor, which includes up to a DUI. Okay? And then three... You have an order of deportation after January 1, 2014. So those are the three groups of people that ICE is currently looking for. We talked about this last week in the raids. That's who they're looking for. They're really not arresting and detaining and deporting other people except those that are going through the immigration court process in the normal course of things. For example, somebody applies for asylum, gets denied asylum, goes in front of a judge, gets denied. They have a deportation order. Those new orders are being enforced by ICE. They're picking people up. They're sending them to the border. They're putting them on an airplane, sending them back to Africa, wherever it happens to be. They're enforcing the law. So if the Supreme Court says, Congress, I mean, says to the executive branch, Obama, no, you can't do DAPA, DACA. Sorry, have a nice life. Goodbye. Then basically we go back to where we are today. So nothing changes for us. Okay? However, think about the timing of all this. The oral arguments in this case will be the, the it'll be the last week the, the Supreme Court has oral arguments this term, which will be April, end of April. I think it's the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. I have to look at the calendar. Um, in fact, we can look at the calendar really quick and see uh, kind of see where we are with the court's calendar. Uh, looks like they've got, um, uh, let's go back to their SupremeCourt.gov here. We'll look at their, or their calendar for arguments. And uh, my guess is that they will have oral argument. It looks like, here we go, um, the, the, the last full week of April. So I think the 23rd, 24th, 25th, they have argument. They only argue for three days a week. 
So then the court has a, has to decide the case. They always do, almost always do, before the end of their term. Their term ends when? August. In, in, no, 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 no. June. Oh. Supreme Court takes the summer off, my, my, my friend, my young Jedi apprentice. So they're off in July and August. They have to go hunting and fishing and on boondoggles and stuff. So we will get a decision likely the last week of August. Ginsburg has to take her nap. <laughs> like a bear. That, that she does. That she does. Um, so she will take her nap uh, for two months. Uh, she's waiting for a new Democrat to get elected so that she can retire. Uh, oh no! It looks like that. Yeah, the twenty fifth, twenty sixth, and twenty seventh. So that'll be the decision. That'll be the argument days. Now the decision days uh, will be in June, and it looks like we'll likely get the order around the, either the twentieth or the twenty seventh. Now think about this, David. What else is happening around that same time? Let's take a look here, and I'm pretty sure that the Republican National Convention in Cleveland is happening right about that same time. Uh, Let's see, Cleveland um, 2016 looks like the dates... Oh, it's July 2018. So three weeks before the Republican Convention, the Supreme Court says, Fifth Circuit, you're wrong. Obama, you have power. Take care clause says it's okay. Bam, DACA takes effect. You can do it. Well, can you imagine the 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 vitriol, the 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 spewing of venom that will come forth from the likely candidate, the likely nominee of the GOP, which I wrongly predicted would not be Donald Trump, uh, and uh, it, it will be like it's going to be a hate fest on immigration and Obama at that. Because and it's going, you know, who else they're going to hate is Roberts probably. If he votes, if he doesn't stop this, because um, I think Obama's got four votes for sure on this, if not more. I mean, I think it could be eight zero or nine one, uh, eight nine eight one or nine nine zero, but he's got at least four votes. So it's just crazy time now. Get this, David. Of course, just saying that 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 the memo is okay to move forward on. Can you just then go apply for DACA? No, there's no form. There's no process. There's no employees. There's no computers. There's no filing. Nothing's done. So my guess is it would probably take the administration 60, maybe 90 days to get these folks in place. I mean, Obama said before it was going to take uh, uh, 60 days, and they were ready to go in 60 days. So presumably they can do it in 60 days. So now we're talking the end of August. All right, so it's end of July into August. That DACA takes place September 1. I, I've been talking, David, to lots of clients. I was at a seminar on, on Saturday talking to a bunch of uh, uh, folks who might be eligible for this, and I asked them, who of you would apply for DACA two months before an election where at least one of the candidates is likely to be hating on immigrants? Nobody raised their hand. David, my advice to people would be to not apply for DACA, or, or DAPA and expanded DACA, two months before a national election, because one, if the GOP nominee wins... The f- one of the very first things he will do in January is issue, another exec- issue an executive order that all of Obama's executive orders are void and canceling the program. So you would have just spent a filing fee, likely around 500 bucks, lawyer fees of 1000 bucks or more, and filing, and given the c- government your data, who you are, where you are, what you are, for nothing. So I think they'll be very, if it, does, if it takes effect, David... 
They'll be very, very... F- Some lawyers, of course, will sell the idea. Oh, you got to apply. you got to get in line. Blah, 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 blah. But they're just trying to make money. And I really believe they're just trying to make money. You only apply for something, in my opinion, if you're going to get it. You know, ancillary benefits aside, you apply for it if you're going to get it. Anything less or not informing your claim, anything less is fraud. So they apply for this in September... Well, even those that apply, will they get it before November? No. I mean, immigration is going to take four, three, three to four or five months to do these cases. So they're not going to get approved. Now, should Hillary Sanders win or O'Malley, whoever the Democratic nominee is in December, in, uh, on November, what is the first, uh, what is the first, uh, what is Tuesday. election day this year? When, what is election day, David, this year? It's the first Tuesday, November, which will be um, the first. Hmm. It's first Tuesday in November, right, Election Day? November 1 this year. That means on November 2, if Hillary had won the night before, my office will be flooded with people applying for DAPA and DACA because we know she won't, she won't get rid of it. Uh, so I think it's going to be, a, you know, this whole immigration thing, taken with the Supreme Court days, now has become political. Not that it wasn't political before, but now it becomes a major campaign issue. And really... Uh, they are clearly diametrically opposed. Now, if Rubio gets the nomination, Rubio's vacillated on this a little bit. Uh, he's he kind of said he'd take DACA away, but then he said he wouldn't take DACA away. Says we really can't deport everybody. We need to do something. You know, so th- this could become a major campaign issue. But the nominee in in the fall cannot be the same type of vitriolic nominee in the primaries. It can't be. When you have, for example, 67% of Americans supporting some type of immigration reform and you're opposed to it, you're going to lose votes over that. So I think, David, this is, this is, this is going to gel. This is going to run our show for the next year. We're going to have tons to talk about as this comes to the forefront. I can't wait to see what names Donald Trump calls the Supreme Court today uh, dangerously stupid or bad. They're really bad. They're just not good people uh, when he finds out that they have taken this case. David, it's going to be wild. I'm, I'm very excited about this. Before we go to break, this can be a quick answer. You mentioned on the air that you thought Ginsburg, who I don't care for at all for obvious reasons, but... It's a very smart uh, woman, by the way. Just so pardon? You know, very smart woman, by the way. Uh, you said that she would not retire until a new Democratic president should die first. Her, yeah, or die first. She apparently but does not want to give Obama the ability to nominate. Why? Now that's interesting. That's a great question. I don't know. There must be something there. There must be. I something mean, she's there. about as liberal as you can get. I agree. And I he's agree. about as liberal as you can get. So he's he not would, as liberal as you think he is. He would. He would nominate uh, if if any of his other two. To um, judges or any example, so many are. Oh, he's going to nominate a liberal. There's no doubt about yeah. it. And and really, I mean, the Democrats in the Senate will. Fit, if a Republican wins the nomination, and Democrats in the Senate have a ch- have a chance, they will they will filibuster any conservative candidate. They just will. They'll filibuster him. They're not going to let a Republican Senate replace Ginsburg with a conservative. They're not going to let him do it. Uh, so, yeah, I, there's just something. There's something there. I don't know what it is. You don't know. I, I have. You got me. 
I don't know. Let's take our final break here on the Immigration Hour. We're going to come back and talk about Ted Cruz. Soy Charles Cook, el jefe del grupo de abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Estoy en su lado. Con más de 20 años de experiencia con la ley de inmigración, conozco cómo ayudarle. Sé la ley y sé que alguna gente podemos ayudar. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611. A las 404-816-8611. O visítenos en el internet. www.immigration.net This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare. And learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Hey, welcome back, David. I'm just daydreaming here. Um, David, I uh, I cannot um, let this uh, Ted Cruz thing go. It's just too fascinating. It's just too fascinating. Because while I believe that Obama uh, was born in Hawaii, uh, we are sitting on the cusp of not understanding for the second presidency in a row what the term natural born means in the context of the Constitution of the United States. And uh, maybe we should get our buddies back on the air again. Those were great shows, weren't they? Those were great shows. But I did see this wonderful uh, meme. They call them memes or memes. I always get this confused, David. I don't know what it is. A picture with a saying on it, a meme. And uh, it says this, quote, it's a picture of Ted Cruz in front of the Canadian flag. I don't know if you've seen this or not. It says, you can, you can knock America all you want, but it's a country where any little Canadian boy can dream of being president if he gets a million dollars from Goldman Sachs. <laughs> yeah, pretty much got everything, right? Oh, here, and here's Trump, of course, saying, Justice Roberts is an absolute disaster. He's an absolute disaster. It's a disaster. Well, in the New York Times today, David, there's a piece by Carl Hulse that talks about that maybe now is the time to resolve what the words natural born mean. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Did you know in Congress today there's like 20 members serving that weren't born in the United States? But it's not a requirement for Congress, right? It's only a Congress. It's only a requirement for, for president the president. President vice president. It's unclear about whether it's for the vice president. It's clear that it's for the president. I don't see that that qualification is in there for the president. Now, if the president dies, can a vice president who's not a natural-born citizen assume power? That's I, a good I question. I thought that, that it was... Uh, well, you have the Constitution right there. Yeah, and I've, I've read through it uh, many times, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. uh. Now, because we've had, we've had McCain, 
this started when you were a younger man, George Romney. Do you remember this coming up when George Romney was running? Yeah, I, I remember. Remember that, right? Yeah. yeah, it came up a lot back then. But it was like, eh, whatever. It, but it seems to be much more important today, likely because there's a much more bigger focus by some folks in the Constitution than they have been in the past. Um, and these these questions about Ted Cruz, born in Canada. Now, I looked into this, David, after our last show, uh, although there have been other stuff that have come out since. There have been, somebody argued that because Ted Cruz's mom appears to have voted in, in the 68 and the 72 Canadian national elections, and because she was married to a Canadian citizen, his dad was a okay. permanent resident who became a Canadian he citizen. He was a Cuban and then became a... Canadian a, and then became a, a, a Canadian citizen, his dad. Okay. Um, that Ted, in the argument with this group, I don't, I don't agree with it, but it was that he never actually is a U.S. citizen. Now, I think that's incorrect. I think they're ignoring what we call derivative citizenship or citizenship acquisition. Acquired citizenship is a better word. Acquired citizenship, you are a citizen at birth if you were if you were born when Ted was 1970, so between um, uh, 58, 50, 52 and, and 86, if you were born to an American mother who had lived at least one year in the United States after the age of 14, which his mother clearly did. So I think his mother is likely, uh, I think he is likely a U.S. citizen. But I don't think that necessarily makes him a natural-born citizen. I've always thought, this is why I always thought it was kind of funny, David, when you were talking about Obama not being natural-born and being eligible. To me, natural-born has always meant you were physically born within the United States. Now, when McCain was running, the argument was, well, he was born on a military base. Well, it's quite clear that military bases are not the United States. They're leased in other countries. So that question came up. But Congress stepped in for McCain and said almost unanimously, no, 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 he's a U.S. citizen. That's, that's a natural born. So Congress has come in and interpreted that clause to mean that if you're born on a U.S. military base abroad, you are a natural born U.S. citizen. You wonder why they haven't done the same for Ted Cruz? Because nobody likes this guy. Okay, you got something there. Twelfth Amendment. All right, what's it say? states that no person constitutionally ineligible to the office of president shall be eligible to that of vice president of the United States. Thus, okay. to serve as vice president, an individual must be a natural-born Forgot about the 12th citizen. Amendment. Great. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. That's a really great point. Uh, now, this was very important. We talked about this last week. Why did they want the... And this is why I think birth in the United States is important, because the founding father, fathers... That to them, birth in the country created a birthright. It created a, 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 a feeling in the soil that this is your country. And therefore, a birth physically in the country was important. Well, the question then becomes, do your parents have to be natural-born citizens? Can your parents be like Rubio's and be permanent residents when, you, when, you're, when you're born? Uh, that, that, that's taking natural-born another step. Because those people say that Rubio is not eligible, even though he was born here, because his parents were only permanent residents who didn't become citizens until, until he was five. They would say, well, he's not natural born either. Uh, but Ted presents a specific, clear issue for us. Can you be born outside the United States, acquire citizenship at birth from one parent, and then be called a natural born citizen? In, in, in most references... Isn't it, isn't it plural? 
for parents. parents. Yeah, it does talk about it. When you look at the what, <clears throat> as a lot of these folks that looked at this issue early on, particularly during the Obama administration, they go back to the writings from France in France. What the word, what our founding fathers would believe natural born citizen meant, and because there's not really much on it. I mean, there's a little bit, but not much on it. Uh, and I think uh, the Supreme Court's looked at this in the Wong case. Uh, which is why I think Obama, having been born in the United States... Maybe. Well, he was born in the United States. Come on, Dave, get off that train. He born in the United States, okay? Maybe. Okay, presuming he was born in the United States, he's a natural-born citizen, as far as I'm concerned. I think, I think that interpretation is solid. Taking it to the next level, uh, I think it gets a little wishy-washy. But that goes back to Ted Cruz. He clearly and admittedly was not born in the United States. There have probably been lots of men and women... Um, that wanted to run for president probably thought I wasn't born in the United States I can't be president even though I'm a U.S. citizen we know that naturalized people cannot be U.S. citizens why? because they weren't born here so if a naturalized person cannot be a U.S. president Arnold Schwarzenegger right yeah, as an example okay? <laughs> he can't be president because he wasn't born here physically even though he's a citizen why is it different for Ted Cruz? Because of the timing of his birth, the timing of his citizenship, it was acquired by law, and that law has changed over the years. I mean, there have been some interpretations of that law over the years that said he's not a U.S. citizen. Okay, so Congress, can Congress then define who's a U.S. citizen? Yes, because the Constitution gives the power to Congress on naturalization or acquisition of citizenship. Congress has that power. But do they have the power to interpret what natural born means? Ask John McCain. He thinks so. You, you've you said some things, and in and, and saying them, I think one of the points that you didn't address was why did they, why did the Founding Fathers say this? And this was basically dual allegiance. You can't right. be pres- president and potentially have dual allegiance. You, you, you either have to be all for the United States, which would be a natural born, your allegiance is only one place, right. the United States. Well, he... So, Cruz carried dual. He knew he, he carried. He, yeah, he, he gave knew it up he carried it. 2014. Yeah. He knew he had dual citizenship. He knew it. It's actually a pattern in Ted Cruz is not telling the whole truth, right? You know, apparently he didn't disclose $1.5 million in loans. A million from Goldman Sachs and 500000 from uh, from Citibank. I mean, oh, oh yeah, I, I didn't disclose Because if he disclosed that when he was running, would he have been elected as a Tea Party candidate? No. He gave the impression he was self-funding, taking small donations. This guy cannot be trusted. But uh, you know, and if it takes him not being a natural-born citizen to be kicked out, that'd be fine by me. I think he's a miserable excuse for a politician and would love to see him just fade away to the sunset with his buddy McCarthy. Um, <laughs> but I've got, a, I've got a lovely niece who supports Mr. Cruz and thinks he's wonderful. So there you go. There's no doubt that Ted Cruz is a very smart man. Uh, but there's also no doubt that he's not a very nice person. And nobody seems to like him. Maybe his wife likes him. But he doesn't have a lot of friends. I've talked to people in Houston who knew this guy when he was younger and today that are lifelong Republicans, super active in the party. They detest this guy. They do not They do not actually like him. He's a, people like, they might not agree with Johnny Isaacson. Everybody likes Johnny Isaacson. Might like, not like David Purdue, but likes David Purdue. They don't like David Cruz. They don't like Ted Cruz. Or as we're going to keep calling him Rafael. <laughs> Rafael Teodoro Cruz. Um, and um, I, I think it's hilarious that it was Trump that brings this up. 
who also may not be qualified under the broader interpretation because his mother was not a U.S. citizen when he was born. Although he was born in the United States. He was born States. in the United States, but his mother But I, I think this comes but this comes back to parent. Parents or mm-hmm. parent. Right. Uh, which I think that is a So I can be president I, because both of my parents were born here, but my dad couldn't be because he was his parents were not born here. That's the argument. Um, I don't agree with that argument. I think that if you if you physically are born here, that's all I really care about if you want to become US president. But I there are now five, maybe seven different lawsuits pending. Well, I, I, you know, you said, well, you know for a fact that Obama was born in Hawaii. I don't, if he were, why hasn't he come forth with a legitimate birth certificate? <laughs> well, the fact that you don't agree with his legitimate birth certificate is not really his problem, is it? Uh, you don't agree with the birth certificate that, that Hawaii has produced on its website for the last eight years. Which is, uh, has been proven to be a... a proven in your opinion. But not proven by anybody else, and certainly not any. Every court that's looked at this has tossed it out on its including conservative Republican judges, because it's not based in reality. Orly Tate's is nuts, and all her lawsuits are nuts. She's a loon, and it's really that simple. But it's not just her. But you know what? Too late. He served his eight years. Yeah. He's always going to be president of the United States now. It's going to be interesting when the truth comes out, though, in my opinion. So, with you that being be, said, you and I won't be around when that happens, David. If the truth comes out, <laughs> well, that's hilarious. Um, but let's look to see what happens with Mr. Cruz this week. Let's see if uh, the pummeling that uh, his royal buttness uh, Donald Trump is giving him will actually impact him <laughs> in the polls. Now, David, voting has started in Georgia. Early voting has started in Georgia for our primary on September one. Uh, at least, at least absentee ballot is starting, and you're going to vote on September on, on March one, correct? For uh, in the primaries. No. You're not going to vote in the primaries. Why not? I'll vote in the primary, but yeah. not. Uh, yeah, I'll vote in the primary. No, you vote in the Republican or the Democratic primary? Republican. Oh, come on. Come on. <laughs> you have a chance to make Bernie the nominee. Come on, David. Just do it. Can't do it. And one last thing before we go, Dan, I'm going to get your opinion. Who will be the next GOP person to drop out of the race? Who's next? Probably Huckabee. He hung around yeah, the whole time last time. Huckabee, and then uh, uh, what's the other guy from Pennsylvania? Santorum. Santorum stayed till the end. Santorum has nothing else to do other than run for president. He has no life. <laughs> That's true. Huckabee has no life. They're not spending any money. I mean, they're not going anywhere. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if two of them end up like third and fourth in Iowa. Because hmm. that's which where they're strongholds. Well, who do you think? Well, I think the next person out is uh, probably going to be Kasich. Probably going to be Kasich. Let's look how that prediction ends up. This is it for the Immigration Now on America's Web Radio. Come back next week. We're going to talk more about Ted Cruz and about DOP and DOC and all things immigration. This is Chuck Cook, your host of the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Bye-bye. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.